Dr. Fauci, welcome back to Washington Post Live. Thank you very much, Yasmin. Good to be with you. That's health policy reporter Yasmin Abutalib speaking with the president's chief medical advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci. He's the guy that we have seen on our TVs nonstop for the last couple of years. And right off the bat, I asked him about whether he's expecting the U.S. to experience the same uptick in infections that we're seeing in parts of Asia and Europe right now that's driven mostly by a variant of Omicron that has been called BA2. That BA2 variant, it's already here. But that doesn't mean we're going to see another surge. Or are we? If we are going to see an uptick, we should start seeing it within the next week or so. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Alexis Diao, in for Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, March 23rd. Today, the BA2 COVID variant, what we know about it and why the U.S. government might not be prepared. Plus, how even sushi makers in Japan are feeling the impacts of the war in Ukraine. But first, let's talk about this new variant. I asked Yasmin, what did Dr. Fauci say about BA2? And should we be bracing ourselves for another surge? Well, Dr. Fauci said that the U.S. is typically always about three weeks behind the United Kingdom, which is currently experiencing its own surge, and that he did expect the U.S. to see an increase in infections in the next few weeks. Well, I would not be surprised at all if we do see somewhat of an uptick. The extent of it and the degree to which it impacts seriousness of disease like hospitalizations and death remains to be seen. I I don't really see, unless something changes dramatically, that there would be a major surge. He did note that one of the differences between the United Kingdom and the U.S. that is not in our favor is that the United Kingdom actually has a higher vaccination rate than the U.S. does. We have now about 65 percent of the total population fully vaccinated. We have about 75 or so percent having received at least one Uh, dose. The issue is that we have about 50% of the people who are eligible to be boosted have not yet gotten boosted. So we could do much better in mitigating against any effects of this upsurge. The U.S. had a really big Omicron surge just a couple of months ago. So that should provide a pretty good level of immunity in the population. But we do know of people who have been infected with Omicron and are getting reinfected with BA2. It's not entirely clear what rate that's happening at or how common it is. But it does seem like between the relaxing of restrictions and the lifting of indoor mask mandates in most parts of the country, the transmissibility of this variant, and the fact that it does comprise most new U.S. infections now, that the U.S. will see some kind of increase in the next couple of weeks. And what else do we know about this new BA2 variant? So we know that BA2 is highly transmissible, even more so than the previous Omicron variant. And we know that it is driving the uptick in infections in Europe right now, and that in the United States, there was data that just came out on Tuesday showing that it does comprise most new U.S. infections. So in some parts of the United States, BA2 is making up about 70 percent of new infections. Mm-hmm. What about symptoms when it comes to this new variant? So this was something Dr. Fauci did answer, and he said so far it looks like 
there isn't more severity with this variant than with Omicron or with previous variants. What the UK is not seeing, and that's a good news, is an increase of severity or an increase in the use of intensive care unit beds or an increase in the all-cause mortality, which means that despite the fact that there are cases going up, there does not appear to be any increase in the degree of severity of the outbreak. So his hope is that even as cases increase, it won't necessarily translate into a huge increase in hospitalizations or deaths that the good thing is it doesn't seem like this is a more severe infection than what we've been dealing with. And hopefully that hospitals will not become overwhelmed again and that these will mostly be mild infections. Mm. And what is the timeline that we're looking at? When is it expected to peak? Well, Dr. Fauci said he expects it in the next couple of weeks because we are typically about three weeks behind the United Kingdom and the United Kingdom is dealing with its increase in cases right now. So it does seem like if you follow that line of logic, the U.S. is maybe two or three weeks from starting to see cases go back up. It doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be another huge surge or it's going to be the same as what we dealt with in January, just that cases are likely to increase. At what rate, it's not yet clear. So right now, all 50 states have dropped their mask mandates. A lot of indoor establishments like restaurants have dropped their vaccine requirements. How might we see that kind of impact the transmissibility of this new variant? So it's a great question. And actually, my my colleague and I just wrote about this because there has been a lot of concern about these new guidelines the CDC put out a couple of weeks ago that did sort of lay the groundwork for lots of states lifting their mask mandates because they classified high burden of disease differently. So, I mean, the concern is if you're relaxing restrictions, that's, of course, going to provide more room for the virus to transmit between people. And in the conversation with Dr. Fauci, you know, he noted that one of the similarities between Europe and the U.S. right now is both places are relaxing restrictions. People are not really masking in either place. There is still virus circulating. And so with all those conditions, of course, it's it's going to spread among people and you're probably creating the space for cases to go up. One has to accept the inevitability that when you go from a reasonably strict indoor masking uh, recommendation And then you have the overwhelming majority of the country now assuming activities indoors without masks. As long as there's virus circulating in the community, you can be almost certain that you are going to see an uptick. Again, at what rate? It's it's not clear. There is a lot of immunity in the population now. So hopefully that'll help blunt the impact. But I think the expectation is cases will increase with all of these changes in place. So what else did you talk to Dr. Fauci about? We talked a lot about boosters and what the future of boosters and additional shots could look like. I've been getting a lot of reader questions in the last couple of weeks, and our team has been getting a lot of reader questions about how many boosters are people going to need, how frequently. And I think that's a question that people really want an answer to. And my takeaway was actually that we just don't know, unfortunately, and it's probably going to be some time before we know what kind of future we're looking at with booster shots? Do we get them once a year? Do we get them twice a year? Is there a point at which there's diminishing returns, like you have some protection and additional shots on top of that are just not worth it? Like, we just don't know the answers to that right now. The CDC will ultimately make the recommendations of when and how often 
one might need a booster and whether that booster can be the booster against the ancestral strain or will we have to give a booster against a variant specific strain? We're prepared for all of those things, but all of them have to be on the table. And again, depending upon the data as it evolves. So I think that's a big question that people want an answer to and are wondering about, especially with Pfizer and Moderna applying for an emergency use authorization for booster shots for everyone 65 and up, not just those who are immunocompromised. And the other thing that I think surprised me a bit was I asked him if he thought local leaders would be willing to reinstate mask mandates in accordance with these new CDC guidelines if we see the expected increase in cases. And he said, you know, I don't think there's a lot of appetite for public health restrictions anymore. No matter what happens, people want to go back to normal. And he said he's not sure that local leaders have the stomach to put these restrictions back in place. I think there's going to be a lot of inertia, if not active pushback, in people, if it is required to increase or go back to some of the mitigation, I think it's going to be a tough time convincing people to do that. So I think that's another thing that we're going to watch really closely for the next couple of weeks. Right now, most counties in the United States, under the new CDC guidelines, which measure burden of disease by hospitalizations rather than just case counts, get to lift their mandates and be compliant with the CDC. That's probably going to change in a couple of weeks. And under the CDC recommendations, they should put mandates back in place. But it does seem like there's really little appetite to do that, even when you're looking at democratic cities and the most liberal cities and leaders. I just think we're in year three of this. People are tired of it. And, you know, it's it's not clear that they're really going to get the public buy-in, even if they do try to put it back in place. Mm-hmm. I mean, and aside from public buy-in, I think that now as we are like two plus years into the pandemic, we know a lot more about how the virus functions, what is a high risk, what is a low risk situation. And I think people also feel more empowered to be able to make more informed decisions for themselves. Absolutely. And When uh, my colleague Lena Sun and I were reporting this story, trying to understand what went into these new CDC guidelines, what about all these people who felt like they had been left behind, whether they're immunocompromised or vulnerable in some way, the explanation we got from administration officials that we spoke to is you can protect yourself if you're immunocompromised. And people weren't really listening to mandates anyway, but we have more tools now. We have antivirals and therapeutics, and we know that N95s protect you. And so I think part of the rationale is if you want to protect yourself, a lot of people have the tools to protect themselves. But of course, if you're one of those people who is immunocompromised and feels really scared, that's not how it feels. It feels like you're left to fend for yourself. So Yasmin, You have also been reporting on the Biden administration's COVID-19 policy. Tell me about how the White House is doing right now, the pandemic response and preparedness. Right now, the White House has been sounding the alarm almost every day about the fact that this congressional deal fell apart to give them another $15 billion of funding to respond to the pandemic. And that money would be to buy more booster shots and vaccine doses, to by antivirals and therapeutics like monoclonal antibodies, you know, to to stock up in case we do have another surge and um, to be prepared in the event of another variant. Please don't slip and decide we're done with the strong support of resources for COVID because COVID is not done with us. So we've got to continue to support the things 
that would continue to get us the interventions and that would continue to prepare us for the next challenge. That deal is not coming together, and the White House has been very vocal about what it's going to mean for their ability to respond to the virus if that money doesn't come through. And and what would that mean? I mean, one of the biggest things is that they will not have the money to buy a fourth shot. Right now, they have enough booster shots for everyone 65 and up because that will likely be authorized by the FDA in the next couple of weeks. They do not have enough doses if at some point it's determined everyone needs a fourth shot. Another huge risk is that they do not have the money to buy more monoclonal antibodies and more antivirals beyond the next three to four months. And when we're talking about securing booster doses, I think what people sometimes forget is the U.S. does have to compete with other countries for a limited supply. So obviously the U.S. has had way more doses than pretty much the rest of the world. But when we're talking about their ability to buy the fourth shots from Pfizer and Moderna, those shots are getting secured by other countries. There are countries in Europe, Japan, a number of other countries are all trying to buy up doses, and some have already started administering fourth doses. So there is a concern that if at some point they decide everyone should get a fourth shot, they're not going to have that supply in place. Can you help us understand how did we even get to this point where money is running out? Over the last two years of the pandemic, Congress has been pretty proactive and generous in appropriating a lot of money at once for the COVID response. We've had three congressional packages since 2020 amounting to trillions of dollars. Now the White House is saying, you know, we need this money because our agencies are going to run out of money. Um, All this money we have is either spent or is obligated to something, and we need to be able to prepare for the future. The problem is a lot of Republicans feel that the White House hasn't done an adequate job explaining why it needs more money, what happened to all the money they did have, why can't they move money around. They feel like there aren't really sufficient explanations for that. And there was some intra-party fighting between Democrats over how you offset the money for the response, whether you take unspent money that states haven't used for the pandemic and help offset the cost of this package, whether you don't. So there's been challenges on a number of fronts where this deal fell apart and the White House is trying to say, you guys need to figure it out because these are the real life consequences if you don't. And and what if they can't get their act together, Yasmin? I mean, what are the implications and what could happen if we continue to not have the funding to address this new uptick in cases with the new variant? Well, I think it's pretty clear that we do need to be prepared for another variant or another increase in cases because every single time the U.S. has sort of let its guard down over the last couple of years, it's only a few weeks before there's another surge or there's a new variant. And if you remember, with just the Biden White House, they were caught pretty flat-footed with both the Delta variant and the Omicron variant. We kept thinking each time when cases came down, we were at the tail end, things were going to get better, and then something else happens. And I think they're trying to signal that they've learned that lesson and they want to be prepared the next time. They don't want to be scrambling to buy enough tests and there's another major testing shortage or there aren't enough booster doses because when we were dealing with Omicron, they determined boosters were the best way to protect people. And still, there's not great uptake of them. You want to have enough therapeutics and antivirals because people are going to need them if lots of people are getting infected. So it's not like everything would dry up at once. It's on a bit of a scale. But it would mean that, again, the U.S. will be caught flat-footed if there is 
a new variant or an increase for whatever reason because we won't have the tools in place already. You can't buy them while the increase is happening. It's too late at that point. Yasmin, what does this all say about what Americans and the federal government and the legislature have all learned from the last two years? I think the really concerning thing for especially experts and people who have really lived the worst effects of this pandemic are that there really haven't been lessons learned, that we've been unprepared for this pandemic from the start. And, you know, what I've heard over and over from talking to experts and different people about this is if we're still in the middle of the pandemic and people don't feel like the funds are appropriate or needed or that we do need them in place to prepare ahead of time, just because things are okay now doesn't mean they're going to stay that way, then what does that say about our ability to take any long-term lessons from this pandemic and do better the next time? I think there is a lot of fear that we're not through this yet. And even then, the lessons that people hope, that everyone hoped people would take away from this, lawmakers, government experts, government officials just aren't aren't being learned in the way that we hoped. And that the lesson we should have learned is that you need to be prepared ahead of time. It's too late if you're scrambling when things have already started. And it seems like we're repeating that cycle over and over as we're still living this. Yasmin, thank you so much. Thank you, Lexi. Yasmin Abutalib is a health policy reporter for The Post. Renny Svernovsky produced the story. After the break, how the war in Ukraine is affecting the price of sushi in Japan. We'll be right back. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, host of On Point. Our big number is one. One episode per day, one story per episode, one really deep dive. At a time when the world is more complex than ever, On Point's daily dedicated conversation takes the time to make the world more intelligible. From the state of democracy to AI to the wonders of the natural world. That's On Point from WBUR, one podcast we think you should subscribe to. And now, one more thing. Thousands of miles from Ukraine, the impact of the war is being felt in an unexpected way. One sushi restaurant in Hokkaido used to serve two pieces of uni, which is sea urchin, for 650 yen, which is about $5. But now it's serving one piece for that same price. Michelle Yihi Lee is the Post's Tokyo bureau chief. She's been reporting on Japan's decision to sanction fish coming from Russia and how those sanctions are driving up the cost of sushi. Russia is the third largest exporter of seafood to Japan. And for certain fish, a huge percentage of the imports are actually from Russia. Like 79% of red salmon comes from Russia, 56% of crab comes from Russia, and 47% of sea urchin, which we know as uni, are imported from Russia. 
So Japan is a major importer of certain kinds of fish from Russia, specifically salmon, crab, and sea urchin, which are very common items in sushi restaurants in Japan. And it's especially common in sort of these more fast casual sushi restaurants, like the conveyor belt ones, the rotary sushi mm. places where <laughs> it comes to you in like a circle and you grab it whenever you want it and they're cheaper and quicker. And so they rely a lot on these imported fish rather than coming from European countries or from Canada or even from local fishermen who tend to sell it at kind of a higher cost. She spoke with producer Emma Talkoff. So talk me through, like, since the war began, how Japan has been reconsidering its reliance on those Russian fish and, you know, what steps they've taken. Since the Russian invasion, Japan has shown a very assertive stance toward Russia. It's very different from 2014 when they were kind of lukewarm because they were worried about certain negotiations with Russia. They didn't want to issue too many sanctions in response to Russia's annexation of Crimea. But this time, it's almost like a 180 degree change. Mm. I mean, Japan is right there alongside other G7 nations. They're limiting, you know, financial transactions when it comes to Russian banks and oligarchs and really keeping up step with the sanctions alongside G7 countries. And as a part of that, you're seeing them limit certain imports from Russia. And Japan has been very aggressive. And a lot of it stems from Japan's concerns about China. They worry that if they don't show a strong front to Russia in this moment, then China will take notice and maybe invade Taiwan or take Japan for granted. But that decision has had a tangible cost for many people in Japan. After the import ban started actually trickling down to local fish markets and sushi restaurants in Japan, the prime minister really took notice. So the Japanese government right now is considering actually stopping that import ban when it comes to seafood because they recognize how big of a deal this is for Japan. Japan is an island nation. Seafood is huge here. You could almost, you know, it's hard to go a day without eating some sort of seafood item in your meal. So the latest from local media reports is that the Japanese government is moving to limit this pain that's been caused on local fish markets and on sushi restaurants. It's pretty striking to me that, like, these fish imports are so important. As you say, they're, like, so integral to, like, everyday life that a sanction on fish from just this one country would totally disrupt the economy. Right. I mean, it's a lot of these unintended side effects that perhaps the leadership didn't think about or didn't realize it would hit businesses so quickly. We were seeing price increases throughout the country from the northernmost part of Japan and Hokkaido to other areas throughout, of course, in Tokyo. We saw uh, people tweeting about their local uh, fish market or their sushi restaurant increasing prices. We talked to Rotary Sushi operators about how they've had to adjust their prices. Part of it is the sanctions. The other part is, you know, when the airspace is limited in Europe, it's really affecting the shipments coming in from certain European countries mm -hmm. like Norway, the Norway salmon. That sort of mm -hmm. shipment has been affected as well. And, you know, for the major sushi chains, it's not as big of a deal because they can diversify their suppliers they have a lot of shipments in stock. But for a lot of these local eateries, they're feeling the hurt most acutely. Another thing this story has made me think about, too, is like 
when I'm eating a piece of sushi, especially if I'm in a place like Japan or just like near an ocean, I just assume that it's come from the ocean that I'm nearest to. But that's not the case at all, it sounds like. Yeah, I was kind of surprised by that too, that there were so many imports. Japan has, you know, plenty of fishermen. It has a huge fishing industry. But then if you think about how much it costs to eat at these more fast casual restaurants, it does make more business sense for them to import it from the close by Russia than to try to get it from like the local fisherman who is running his own shop and doing everything from catching the fish to cutting it to shipping it himself. And I think it just shows just how interconnected these supply chains are in ways that we don't even think about. You know, when we mm-hmm. talk about the supply chain, a lot of times it's things like tech items and semiconductors, and it's so much more intricate than we even realize. And for Japan, it's a really legitimate reason that they're doing this. But when you start to think just how popular these issues are and how much they're affected, then you start to see like, wow, the Russian invasion is not a super far away thing. It's actually here in Japan too, and here in my local neighborhood's Rotary Sushi restaurant. Michelle Yihi Lee is the Tokyo bureau chief for The Post. She spoke with Emma Talkoff, who produced the story. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show is mixed by Renny Svernofsky with production help from Julie Deppenbrock. It was edited by Ariel Plotnik. I'm Alexis Diao. Martine Powers will be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.